Welcome everyone, it's a good day to be in God's Word. I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is the Bread of Life. Our program is presented by the International Disciple Making Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism. You can learn more about our work to bring Christ to the nations by going to traincpe.org. Or to learn about our missions fellowship in Boise, Idaho, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Paul's words in Romans 5.18, that through one man's trespass, condemnation came upon all men, so through one man's obedience all will be justified, has been used by individuals to teach that the Bible teaches that all people will eventually be saved and get to heaven. In our last broadcast, we let the Lord's own teaching refute such a notion, including his words of Judas, that it would have been better that he had never been born, something that would not be accurate if in the end Judas is saved to eternal heaven. And now today, we'll let Paul himself speak to this universalist idea and give his own refutation of the notion that all will be saved in the end. Paul gets to help us understand what he means. So go to Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And remember, when Paul comes to Romans 5, he's coming through what he's already said and what he's indicating. And, and in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul's warning about the final day of God's wrath and judgment being poured out upon idolaters and upon individuals who think they're morally superior to idolaters and upon individuals who think that they're religiously, like the Jews, were religiously superior to those moralists, those Greek moralists, or those pagan idolaters. Here's ultimately where Paul is going to take them. And again, he takes the individuals there in the middle of chapter 3, this basic idea. But here's what we read in verses 5 through 8. But in accordance with the hardness of your heart and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath and tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. You've got to put that against this idea. See that there are tremendous, vast, eternal consequences that are at stake in how individuals live their life and the choices they made. The third thing that I would point out here is the greater context is Paul is emphasizing throughout this argument, and he starts it in the middle of chapter 3, he's come to this point, and he'll go all the way through chapter 5, that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. There has to be, on our part, a determination or decision to believe Christ, to put our faith in Him. In John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we're told that this faith of this believing in Jesus Christ is a receiving. We receive Him by faith and that they're synonymous with one another. So the whole argument, and you'll see this in chapter 3. Let's have your Bibles in Romans chapter 3 for a second. And let's just kind of emphasize this. Let's look at verses 21 through 26. Because here, in a sense, Paul is bringing his argument to its fullest expression. What he's concluding is, listen, you're not saved by your moral activity. You Jews are not saved by following all your law. You're only saved when you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forward as a propitiation, that is, as an atoning sacrifice by His blood, 
through faith, to be realized through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 4, he's going to emphasize this even more. And he's going to talk about this throughout the chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, in which we've come to our passage now, he begins it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's by faith. Now, even in the context of the passage we're looking at, look at verse 17 of chapter 5 where we're speaking about this all in Adam and this all in Christ. For if by one man's offense, death reigned through one, speaking of Adam, much more, abounding even more, those who receive, there's faith, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. He's not abandoning this idea that those who come under the benefit and blessing of Christ, it comes through faith. So there is the broader context of all of Jesus' teaching. There is the broader context of what Paul has been saying throughout his letter. And then now we are even placing it in the immediate context in which Paul is talking about and making an argument that it's those who have faith in Jesus Christ that are delivered and that are saved. And this has to come in and bear in on what we understand is being taught here. So what might we add to all that we've just said here? Well, we can conclude that all individuals who are positively impacted by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says that all in Christ shall live. That all who are positively impacted by the saving work of Jesus Christ are brought under that impact by their faith in Him, by believing in Him. That all of these are the ones who are in Christ are not the same. Now get this, all of those who are in Christ through the saving faith are not the same as all those who are in Adam. They're different. They're two different groups of individuals. Put it another way. All of us start out in Adam. When you're born, you're born in Adam. We all start out in Adam. We inherit the fallen nature that Adam gave us. We are on a trajectory of sin. We're under, we're being brought to and on a trajectory of judgment and condemnation. All of us. It's come upon all of us. But all of us do not end up in Adam. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're no longer in Adam, you're in Jesus Christ. You're in Him by faith, and you become a different category of individuals. We have a destiny that's set out for us from Adam of sin and death and destruction, but when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have a new destiny. We're in Him, and in that moment that we're in Him, we have a destiny of forgiveness, of ongoing graces that we experience, a promise that we can reign through Jesus Christ in this life, and we shall reign throughout all eternity. In Adam, we are under the reign of death. In Christ, we're reigning over it. We're reigning in Christ. and So, there in a sense are two different groups, but there still is a problem here. So there's your question. The Bible does not teach universalism. The Bible is not somehow saying the all of Adam and the all in Christ are exactly the same group of individuals. There's the all that are in Adam, and there's the all that are in Christ. And so we understand it that way, but we still have a bit of a problem. All right, so this will lead us to our next question. Do you feel like you're in a lecture in college? I was saying to my wife what I was going to be speaking on this morning. She said, you know, you ought to say, I said, what's the title of your sermon? I said, it's, the title is Christ Triumph in History. And she said, well, you ought to title your sermon Christ Triumph in History for Dummies. You need to make this really simple. And I said, I can't do it. 
I, this is as simple as I can make it. This is why we have to learn how to read our, the Word of God, and we have to study it. And this is why we're called to be students and to be attentive, and this is why you need to be in the Word over and over again. And this is why you even need to go back and test the things that I'm saying right now. So we have another problem here, a bit of a question. It appears in this passage, and we can't deny it, that the all and the many are declarations of a quantitative reality. It's speaking of all. It's a number. It's all in Adam come under death. And by the way, we all start out under Adam. That's the universality of it, right? And then the all in Christ is there as well. And it's quantitative as well. It's there as well. But here's the problem. We recognize that. In this passage, it's declaring something that you and I are personally not seeing right now. It's saying all this quite quantity in Adam are going into death and destruction. But then it's saying there's an all in Christ that is quantitatively greater than the all in Adam. He uses the word much more. It's a language of quantitative expansion. He uses another word, which is periusu, where he says it abounds. If what happens in Adam abounds, so will all this grace abound in Christ. And the word there in Greek is to surpass. It's like to surpass in number. And then Paul adds on to it. Not only is there abounding through Jesus Christ of the numbers that will come to him, but he uses the word hyperperiusu, which means to superabound. It's to beyond far beyond the numbers that are in Adam. And that's confusing to us. You know why? We don't see that. We don't see it adding up that way. Look, go out and read the newspaper. Go out and walk through your neighborhood. And it seems like the numbers are adding up on Adam's side. And doesn't the Bible say that we're a remnant? And didn't the Lord Jesus even say when the Son of Man returns that he asked the question, will he find faith on the earth? Doesn't the Bible speak of a the attrition of the faithful, and even a great apostasy that will take place among those who name him. And how do the numbers add up? There's a quantitative expression of numbers that are go Adam's way. And then in the same passage, there's a quantitative expression of numbers that go Christ's way. But the numbers that go Christ's way are said to be much more. The numbers that go Christ's way are said to hyperabound. And so really quickly, without... A lot of commentators basically say, well, the numbers are there for Adam, right? But in reference to Christ, it's simply speaking of a qualitative experience. And you know what they're doing? They're breaking a rule of hermeneutics. They're breaking a rule in which we interpret our scripture. You can't do that. But I know they're trying to salvage this thing and understand this thing. But there's another answer for us. But first, let me just emphasize to you this idea that the all is quantitative. That the all is speaking to numbers. And if it's true, then actually what we're being taught here is that the Lord Jesus is not simply the positive equivalent to the negative of Adam, but that his effect and the impact of his ministry and his work and his obedience goes superlatively beyond in its extension and impact upon the world. In other words, there are actually many more, abundantly more, who will come to experience the saving work of Jesus Christ than those who come under the death of Adam. It's greater, it's more extensive, and that's why you have this phrase, even more, or how much more, and this is why you have this expression that it surpassed or abounded, and then it, it abounded even more, where sin abounded, grace did much more, it superabounded, it says. And you can't get away from these things. That's what being, is being expressed. John Stott concludes consideration of this passage and the language that's used in this passage to draw the conclusion that the work of Jesus Christ to save men will be much more effective 
than the disobedience of Adam in bringing condemnation upon us all. He says this, quote, Christ will raise to life many more than Adam will drag to death, and that God's grace will flow in more abundant blessing than the consequence of Adam's sin. Actually, John Calvin reached the same conclusion long before, writing of the grace of Jesus Christ, that it belongs to a greater number than to condemnation contracted by the first man. In other words, more will come under this grace. More will contract the grace, you might say, and come under the grace, the saving grace of Jesus Christ than those who have contracted condemnation through the fall of Adam. And that seems to be what's being said to us, and you see it in the passage. Charles Hodge, speaking on this passage and writing on this passage a couple hundred years ago, says this in looking at verse 21. The benefits of redemption shall far outweigh the evils of the fall. And then he begins to show the qualities of those benefits. But then finally he comes back to conclude that it's not just qualitatively exceeding it. Of course, life qualitatively is better than death. It goes without saying. But he goes to point out that ultimately what is being addressed here is the quantitative impact of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so he concludes that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is giving us, quote, reason to believe that the lost shall compare to the saved in no greater proportion than the inmates of a prison to the mass of the community. In other words, go to the county jail and count the heads and then go out and count all the heads in our community and all the heads in our community are like all those who will come under the saving work of Jesus Christ. How wonderful. You'll have to join us in our next broadcast to learn how it is that Christ will bring this promise into fulfillment. Thank you for listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of church partnership evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.